From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. Today, we speak with one of the original Silicon Valley venture capitalists, BJ Kasson. But BJ's story goes far beyond the impact he had as a venture capitalist. Prior to his investing career, BJ co-founded the technology company Zydex, which went on to achieve Fortune 500 status in 1987 and helped revolutionize the microfilm and data storage industry. Later in his career, BJ became passionate about increasing opportunities in the education system. Starting in 2000, with a $22 million gift, the Casson Educational Initiative Foundation was launched to help replicate two very innovative school models across the country, Cristo Rey and Nativity Schools. BJ is now implementing his venture philanthropy model with the Drexel Fund that funds a range of innovative schools, networks, and educational entrepreneurs. If there is one theme that has come to define BJ's success, it is the ability to take an idea and scale it to more places and impact more people. He describes his greatest joy as seeing people open a new school and recognizing that there are a lot of entrepreneurs in the system. All they need is guidance, some capital, and a good idea. BJ's story is a great opportunity to reflect on how you can replicate the best ideas in your own life to scale the impact on those around you. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. Well, BJ, welcome and thanks for joining me today on Innovators on Tap. Glad to be with you. Well, you know, you've had an amazing career. And so I think I want to start with uh, going back to when you helped co-found Zydex. I think it was back in 1969. And, and you grew the company. It went on to become a Fortune 500 company with, I think, over $750 million in sales, 7,000 employees worldwide. And I believe the company was really built around some data storage technology. So can you just give us a little bit of an idea of what was the innovation that helped you kind of start or build that company? Founding team, we came out of uh, Memorex. And Memorex was the first company to compete with uh, IBM at that time, selling uh, computer tape. And uh, clearly, we could see that uh, with the mainframe computers, there was a lot of data that was being put on microfilm because of the cost per byte, if you will, was uh, was much lower than magnetic at that time. The initial product was uh, microfish, uh, so a, a dry process photographic film that was easy to use, no dark rooms, all this sort of thing. It was a huge huge market, and uh, we grew very rapidly. And then, uh, right at the same time, the personal computer industry uh, was just starting. And it was clear that uh, this was going to be a major uh, change to how people do business, how how they maintain records, et cetera, et cetera. At that time, could you imagine the amount of data we would be 
generating and consuming today? In other words, if someone would have said, we're going to have you know, a terabyte here and there, would that have seemed outrageous at the time? Uh, yeah, uh, completely outrageous. Uh, and uh, you, you started talking about you know what's a terabyte? <laughs> yeah. I mean that, that's that's really uh, the the early stages of this burgeoning uh, you know market. Uh, you know one thing I did I went and uh, uh, bought a uh, IBM personal computer, uh, and uh, you know there was nowhere really no place to really learn much about it. There were some classes here locally, etc. We started uh, thinking of you know all sorts of applications. That are the obvious ones, accounting and uh, et cetera, et cetera. IBM had the, but we know we we really had no idea at, at the at the beginning. And so it, there's nothing like being at the right place at the right time. Is there one leadership lesson you take away from that early experience? Be do- very dogged in uh, your pursuit of success. Uh, we had all sorts of reverses. Uh, primarily in, in the early stages where, where the uh, product development phases. And uh, in a startup company, delays equals cash burn and having to go back to uh, venture firms to uh, get more capital in, into the company, very, 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 very uh, painful. But uh, we, we were fortunate that we really believed in what we were doing. We had the passion. Uh, we had the, uh, the right, uh, right people. And uh, it's amazing with a team uh, that's dedicated to uh, success, uh, you can reach it through all sorts of obstacles. You know, after Zydex, you go on to become, you know, I think one of the first venture capitalists, angel investors on what has now become the famous Sand Hill Road. I'm not sure it was famous back then. So how did you decide to go from you're in an operating business pursuing these memory magnetic storage technologies to, hey, I'm going to become an investor? Uh, I got to the point uh, at Zydex that I re- really wanted to repot myself, do something different. Venture capital seemed uh, very intriguing to me. One of the investors who, interestingly enough, looked at the company, didn't invest. His name was Don Lucas, and uh, he had an empty office, uh, 3000 Sand Hill Road, Building 3. And uh, uh, one of the maintenance guys at Zydex we had a truck and I helped him load my furniture into the truck and we drove it up to 3000 Sand Hill Road and uh, I became a venture capitalist. Is there an experience from your time as a venture capitalist or a particular deal? And you kind of mentioned this before, the person that chose not to invest in Zyadex. Is there one of those ones or one or two that you go, yeah, well, there's a couple I didn't invest in that in hindsight, I, I really missed something. I think the the big the biggest one and uh, and it's a really a shame on me uh, was uh, my uh, office mate and we were really without any uh, uh, legal uh, document uh, was was really the founder of uh, uh, Larry Ellison uh, who started uh, Oracle and uh, Don was chairman of the board and very active in uh, the early stages of Oracle. Oracle really wasn't, uh, the venture money went in later on at much higher valuations, but basically uh, stock was being, uh, uh, Don and I would buy, would be from uh, Larry or Bob Miner, the two founders or, or others. Um, I should have bought one heck of a lot more of that stock. That's the one that jumps out uh, at me when you, uh, when you ask that question. 
So I'm going to switch gears here a little bit and, and kind of talk about, you know, you go from this successful corporate career, then a lot of success as an investor, as a venture capitalist. And then if I understand the story correctly, in 2000, uh, you, you'd already been somewhat involved in uh, Catholic schools and some activities, but you go to Chicago and you visit these two low-income schools, which is, I think it was San Miguel Middle School and the Chris and the Cristo Rey Jesuit High School. Right. And it's my understanding this led and kind of inspired you to launch the Casson Educational Initiative Foundation. What was it about those schools that made you say, I'm going to really get involved here? To backtrack a little, uh, my wife and I uh, were supporting a number of uh, kids in scholarships, et cetera, and I was looking for leverage, how to, how to make our dollar uh, reach reach more kids. I had identified the Jesuit uh, Nativity Schools and the uh, Christian Brothers San Miguel Schools. I visited uh, Christa Ray in Chicago, uh, which was you know the first work study Christa Ray model school. Uh, looking at leverage and opening new schools and how to do that, saw the elements of the Christa Ray School that uh, the aha moment was on both of them that uh, uh, we know enough and could structure uh, a plan to replicate these. You know, I think in our previous conversation, you had mentioned that, you know, you were sitting there looking at this and you said, look, they, I realize there's this business model out there called McDonald's built around this idea of franchising. And and that's a really good idea. Why didn't we do it with these schools? But I have to imagine the first time you you introduce this idea, whether it's to the Cristo Ray team in Chicago or even to the other people you tried to get involved to support this, I would imagine there was a little bit of hesitation or resistance to this idea of, you know, franchising or the word that you chose later, replicating this school. Was there resistance to the idea in the beginning? Uh, uh, actually, no. Very much excitement over the, over the, over the model. And when you uh, saw the feasibility study we put together, which basically is building a business plan and getting the various constituents you needed, the business community, the philanthropy community, the education community. Once, once the feasibility study started, it was pretty hard to stop it. Oh, as you're aware, I'm a, I'm a founding board member of what will soon be the 39th Cristo Ray School. Yep. I'm curious, you know, this is 20 years later. Did you think we'd be talking about 39 or 40 schools when you started this idea? Is that more successful or did you think it would be even bigger? We, we knew there was a huge... Uh, de demand demand out there, and so the model is so compelling to what the outcome data for the kids are. So uh, I, you know, we didn't think of, of 10, 20, 30, 50, or what have you. I, I knew there was going to be a, uh, a, a saturation point because of the jobs. Uh, the feasibility study—that's uh, the beauty of it. It, it uh, pulls all that data out before you 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 get to make the uh, the hard. A hard decision to go ahead and start the school. So I know then you go on after you 
build this fund and help build these nativity schools and the crystal ray schools. And then in 2015, you take this replication model even further when you start the Drexel Fund, which uh, it's described as a venture philanthropy fund. And I know you've already had success. I think there is over 26 different schools that have already been launched with funding through this. Where does the venture philanthropy idea come from? And how do you think it's different than just traditional regular philanthropy? Just talking through on and off uh, about the uh, the need for uh, quality schools in inner cities, um, issues where they would be inner city, high quality, and financially sustainable. And that led us to uh, looking at uh, tax credit states. Um, we put a business plan together. We set up a meeting at the Hilton Hotel at O'Hare Airport, made a two-hour pitch talking about the opportunity and uh, what our replication strategy would be. Uh, out of that came uh, a, n- a number of uh, investors, Walton B- Foundation being the, the largest uh, one of them. So we're off and running again, and this, this was uh, five, five years ago. Our model of uh, finding uh, very high quality schools that met our uh, criteria. Uh, we're thinking of opening schools, not having the uh, background knowledge or how to go about it. Uh, that, you know, those people became the sweet spot for, uh, for Drexel. As I looked at the Drexel Fund's website and, and you read about some of the really innovative programs you're doing, yeah. I think there was one that's like um, build up in Birmingham where the students actually earn equity in the building that they're helping to construct as part of their degree. So these are really innovative models, I think, that are just really outside the realm of how we've thought about education in the past. And I know that the fund is built around private schools, but have you thought about how we might take some of these ideas that you're discovering and get them into our public school system? Because it just seems like you're learning so many good ideas that some of them have to be able to translate. Or is that just a, are there just structural barriers to keeping that from happening? There are probably structural barriers, but you know, we haven't tested that uh, thesis. I would love to someone walk up to us and, and uh, uh, say, uh, uh, why can't that be uh, uh, integrated into uh, public schools? And uh, obviously we would share all our information and all that sort of thing. But you know, we've been very, very, very focused because that's that's something we can control is uh, is the uh, pr- private school market. Well, I hope as these success stories become more and more popular, I hope that we find some some people on the public school side who take a, take you up on your offer, just because I think there's so much that can be done there. Um, but I'm going to transition a little bit now because I want to talk a little bit more about how you personally think and get into your mindset and and how you think about entrepreneurship and leadership and innovation. And so I'm going to ask you some questions I've been asking all of our guests. And let me start with, do you believe that your success has come more from avoiding failure or embracing failure? From avoiding failure. I had a five-year schooling on leadership uh, in the United States Marine Corps. And um, just taking uh, avoiding failure in the, in, uh, in the Marine Corps parlance, uh, we used to do war games. And uh, as soon as you uh, started uh, the, the, the movement, uh, everything changes. And you have to anticipate that or 
adapt real quickly. And at the end of the of the day or the exercise, uh, the outcome doesn't look anything like what you what the original plan was. Uh, I think th that that five year experience in the Marine Corps uh, dr drilled into me uh, uh, looking around corners, uh, uh, you know, avoiding mistakes uh, or, or identify them as they come uh, barreling at you, so that you can uh, adjust your adjust yourself. So, if you're going to pursue innovation or build a team to pursue innovation. What do you think is more important to that their success? Embracing a culture of the brutal honesty, even if it makes people uncomfortable, or creating an environment of what's commonly called now psychological safety, where you're really trying to adjust the conversation to avoid confrontation, or you might have some other version in between there. But what do you think? No, br br brutal uh, honesty. Uh, everybody has to know uh, what's going on, the good and the bad. People have to be uh, willing to, uh, to to adjust and uh, know the reason why you're you're adjusting. And sometimes it's uh, very uh, difficult, embarrassing, <laughs> uh, tough to do. But uh, uh, everybody knows there's no confusion about what the objective is and where 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 we are at to achieve that objective. When you're evaluating talent for a venture that you're going to invest in, whether it's a for-profit venture or one of these non-for-profits, are there some must-have characteristics in the people that you're looking for? Not necessarily in this order. In integrity, clearly passion, expertise in what they want me to invest in, whether it be a school or, or a business. Can they Are they leaders? Can they attract other good, uh, good people? And one of the things I've found very helpful is uh, what kind of life they uh, they lead uh, in the interview process. Along the way, I'll just uh, out of the blue ask, and, and what do you what do you do for fun, or to see if there's balance in uh, in the uh, in the life of these people who are about to uh, embark on uh, a very high pressure commitment to uh, that can be 24/7 in some cases uh, for a period of time at uh, you know, building a business or building a school. What advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? Well, the advice is, uh, first of all, uh, know your own comfort level. Make the uh, evaluation. Are you willing to really push that comfort level many degrees uh, to, for what you're about to embark on? So there's a cold reality check that uh, the the, uh, the the entrepreneur has to, has to really really make and so you're not only making a that commitment on yourself you're making a commitment to me as an investor uh, that you should take seriously that uh, you're not going to try this out for a couple of months and give up and move on you're you're, you're making a hard commitment to uh, a group of people your 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 founding group the employees you're going to hire. Uh, the vendors you're going to start to do business with to your investor group, and that uh, this is a big deal, and uh, it, we're all in this together, uh, but we all have to uh, be aligned in what the end success is going to uh, to be, and we should um, realize realize that going in that uh, uh, for better for worse we're partners. You know, before we wrap up here, is there something you wish we would have talked about or you want to mention? Well, you know, what pops into my head 
is how much fun I've had, you know, starting a, a company, uh, the camaraderie of the founding group and the fierce employees and first Christmas party and, you know, the, the joy and the fun of, you know, even though there's a lot of hard work, uh, you know, working with uh, entrepreneurs and starting companies and the ones that go uh, go public and uh, I've been at, uh, opened up NASDAQ uh, with a company I've done. You know, then we have a great dinner or a company goes public and the bankers uh, who've made a hell of a lot of money have a big bank banquet in celebration and have all sorts of fun things they, they hand, hand out. Replication of the schools, the very joy of uh, seeing uh, people uh, open the new school, uh, the discovering the that there are entrepreneurs in the education world, and like there are a lot of them, and uh, all they all they need is guidance, uh, some capital, and uh, an idea that they have or an idea you put to them. The, the one thing that uh, I would say over this what we've been talking about is the pure pure joy that uh, I've experienced uh, dealing with some marvelous, uh, in some cases crazy, uh, in some cases driven uh, people that, that have made a wonderful experience in my life. I want to thank you for taking the time to be on the show. The, the things you've done and the experiences you've had and the lessons that you provide for myself and, and all the people listening it's incredibly inspirational. I know that um, I have written down a word after we talked the first time, and it now hangs uh, on my computer monitor, and it says replication. And what it's a reminder to me is that it's okay to help someone out, but if we can somehow take that idea and replicate it, the impact it's just, and as someone who's now seen the impact of the work you did on Crystal Ray 20 years later, it's so powerful. And I, you know, the thing I will take away personally is that uh, it's great to be involved and to do something, but if you can scale it and replicate it, then uh, you can have an impact far beyond yourself. And so I just want to thank you for all the great work you've done. Thanks for being on the show. We've really appreciated it. Chuck, oh, my pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks to BJ for joining me on Innovators on Tap and sharing his insights, including what he calls the cold reality check every entrepreneur has to make. He says that you have to know your own comfort level and then ask yourself if you are ready to really push that comfort level. We want to thank all of you who have embraced this show and helped us grow our audience so far. And while we're proud of our success, we're just getting started and hope that you will tell your friends about the show. We'd also really appreciate it if you would take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Please note that we have additional resources available on our website at innovatorsontap.com, including transcripts, articles, and an option to sign up for the Innovation Alley newsletter. Thanks for joining us on this journey, and let's go change the world.